we're getting ready to have a live Billy Billy so I don't play jazz. I'm not a swinger. My good friend Jason Crane. Now it's jazz. Now it's jazz. Now it's now it's now it's jazz. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is another TJS Extra, where we take a look at jazz from a different angle, this time from the writer's perspective. Doug Ramsey has been a jazz writer, a jazz reviewer, and a jazz critic since the 1960s when he started writing for Downbeat. He's written for Jazz Times, many major newspapers, and also had an impressive career as both a print and broadcast journalist. Doug now is behind the excellent blog Riftides, where people from the jazz community get together and talk about the music we all love. I caught up with Doug Ramsey in Rochester, New York, where he was in town to attend the 10th annual edition of Swingin' Jazz, a jazz event that brings professional musicians together with students for the benefit of both. It's run by the Commission Project, a national organization, probably a worldwide organization by now, that's based here in Rochester, New York. With no further ado, we take you now to the Lodge at Woodcliffe, a hotel in the picturesque hills around Victor, New York, just south of Rochester, for an interview with Doug Ramsey. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jason. Good to be here. It's great to have you here. You've had a, a really colorful, interesting life in the world of, of journalism, both print and broadcast, and a significant portion of that in jazz. When in this <clears throat> amazing career did you uh, first begin writing about jazz and having someone give you money for it. Oh, money. <laughs> You're supposed to get money for that? Now you tell me. <laughs> I think I started writing about it not for money when I was still in high school. A little bit. <clears throat> there was a radio program in, in Wenatchee. That was my first experience with radio called Teen Talent Time. <laughs> the engineer, whose name was Bob Robertson, went on to be a very good sportscaster. Uh, called it teen torture time, <laughs> but I did I did little pieces about music on there, everything from Rafael Mendez to Frankie Carl to Charlie Parker. When did I start writing about about it for money? Sometime in the '60s, I guess. I think uh, Dan Morgenstern, when he was editor of Downbeat, asked me to start doing reviews. And how did he know about you at that point? This is when I was in New Orleans and was involved with the New Orleans Jazz Festival as a board member when it, the initial incarnation of the New Orleans Jazz Festival, not the Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey operation it has become since. And it was, it was a very good straight-ahead jazz festival. And Dan came down to cover that first one, and we got to know each other, and that's when he asked if I'd do some writing. Do you remember what you wrote about first for Downbeat, or some of the first things you covered? Were they interviews? Were they reviews? No, there were, were reviews, they... okay. record reviews, and I couldn't possibly remember without sure. looking what the first <laughs> one was. Had Downbeat, I'm, I'm assuming the answer is yes, but had Downbeat been something you'd been reading for a lot of your life with the interest in jazz that you had? Or Oh, sure. And uh, I'm wondering, stepping into that, that role in a national magazine, 
writing reviews, how did that feel? I, I know it can sometimes it can be uncomfortable to kind of let your opinion be out there and black and white about someone's heartfelt project. I wonder how you how you dealt with that or if it wasn't something that, that I tried you. to deal with it as objectively uh, as I could using the same criteria that I used in reporting to be as fair and objective as possible. Although I did, I did things that I was assigned to do that the editors asked me to do. I also reviewed a lot of things I wanted to review, and I generally didn't want to review things I didn't like. Uh, I don't think that's always true of all reviewers, but but I preferred to to try to shed light on things that meant something to me that I thought would mean something to other people, and that's more or less the philosophy that's governed me in writing about jazz ever since. Is there a place? I'm not looking for people to knock. Sure. I, I figure they can take care of that by their own actions. <laughs> That's interesting. Is there a is there a place for for negative reviews, or or maybe a better way to ask is what what's the function of of review and criticism in the in the jazz world? I think it's to help people understand, to to open up knowledge and 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 wisdom to them. Uh, sure, there's a function for a negative criticism that can be helpful too but if your if your goal is to find things to criticize in a negative way then you're probably going about it for the wrong reasons i think i think illumination is the guide and over the years you've established relationships with so many musicians uh we'll talk more about your blog riftides in a minute but one thing that's to me that's so fun about reading it is that you'll mention a musician and then within 24 hours there'll be a post from either that musician him or herself or from people who played with that person if they're no longer with us and uh, it's just it's obvious that folks in the music community are are plugged into what you're doing i wonder if over the years has that has that changed the way you you write reviews or uh, uh how you how you approach it has it made it more meaningful for you for example well if you know a musician you have a double-edged sword. Uh, if it's somebody you like, you're reluctant to say anything bad about them. There are times if the music fails that you have no choice but to do that. Whitney Balliott told me that when he first began writing about jazz, he had the hard-nosed view that you had to remain separate. You should attend the performance, listen to the recording, never make yourself known to the musician, uh, and go back and write the down-the-middle, objective, tough kind of, of piece that you thought you should. But he began to realize as he got older that it was very helpful, actually, to know a little bit about the musician. And when he started doing those, that series of, of profiles for The New Yorker, that's, I think, the point at which he probably realized that, that knowing the musician made a huge difference. Have you found the same to be true in your own writing? I have. Yeah, I have. There's a negative side to that, and that is that if you... It's human, I suppose, for a performer who has to struggle so hard to make it in music, and I'm sure the same thing is true of the stage and screen, uh, that they want praise and they want publicity, and, they, and it's human for them to see you as an outlet for that publicity. And you have to be on guard for that because, you know, musicians will try to use your good offices to get themselves better known. But in general, 
keep being aware of that, I think, is wise. But in general, it's very helpful to, to know and be able to talk with musicians about music. I've learned an enormous amount just hanging out, having a drink with any given saxophone player or pianist. One relationship that you had that certainly not only seemed to have a great effect on your life, but has given us a, a wonderful book is the relationship with Paul Desmond. Uh, how did that How did that begin? How did you first meet Paul Desmond? In 1955, the Brubeck Quartet, which was just becoming very well known, the time cover about Brubeck had just come out, for one thing. They played a concert at the University of Washington in Seattle, which I attended and covered for the University of Washington daily. During the intermission, I introduced myself to Desmond and commented on a quote he had played from a Chet Baker recording from one of Chet's solos on a piece called Happy Little Sunbeam. And Desmond gave me a long look and said, you recognize that? So I confessed. And, and he said, well, I'll try to finish it for you in the second half. <laughs> and in the, second, the first piece in the second half, he worked in virtually all of the rest of Chet's solo into his solo. It couldn't have fit. Wouldn't, if you had laid it out on paper, any musician who knew chords would have said, that can't work but it did. So that was the beginning of our relationship. Then the next time they came back to Seattle, we got together and we just saw each other off and on over the years and eventually became quite close. What kind of a, a man was he? We know, we know a lot about him as a saxophone player, but was he an easy person to get to know? If he wanted to be. If he didn't, he just disappeared. If you know a lot about him as a saxophone player, you know a lot about him as a man. He was witty, extremely bright, quiet and wonderful company knew a lot about everything literature sports women and just a great guy to hang out with uh, a close friend it seems like he defined uh, another way to approach the saxophone and in particular the alto saxophone in the wake of uh, the kind of bebop movement he found another place to be on the saxophone and I'm not sure there are that many people, I don't know how you feel about it, occupying that space that he created that, that have ever done that. Not in quite the way he did. Uh, well, he, he said he, he loved bebop. He loved Charlie Parker. In fact, they were friends. Uh, and Charlie Parker said on more than one occasion that Desmond was his favorite alto player. A lot of musicians who are hardcore bop devotees refused to accept that, but it was true. So he set out, and in the book, uh, I use a lot of his letters and a lot of his personal journals that turned up unexpectedly. It was a great, a great find when I was working on the book. He outlines in very specific philosophical terms why he doesn't want to be a bebop clone and what he plans to do about it. It's fascinating reading. In exactly the way he did it, I think the answer is no. There aren't a lot of people. There are people who can kind of play like Paul Desmond. Brent Jensen uh, made a wonderful album called The Sound of a Dry Martini, which was a tribute to Desmond, which he consciously tried to sound like Paul. He can play otherwise, but he did a nice job of that. And there are other players who have tried to do that. Gary Foster sometimes can go in that direction. But no, I think he was so highly individual that it would be difficult for somebody to really do it the way he did because it was coming from, uh, from uh, not only his acute intelligence but deep inside his emotional approach to improvisation. When did you decide to begin working on the book? 
Well, it was in the back of my mind for a long time. In fact, shortly after Paul died, I thought about it. But it seemed such a formidable job. There wasn't that much information available. There, there was what Brubeck remembered, and there was what certain other musicians remembered. And so, but, but then, well, to be crass about it, a publisher approached me and asked me if I'd do it and offered me an advance, and that triggered my decision to finally go ahead. It wasn't a big advance, but it was an advance. There are no big advances on jazz books. And then, when I got into it, I went to New York, had lunch with Rick Breitenfeld, Paul's cousin cousin in the family with which Paul lived for about four or five years when he was at a very formative part of his young boyhood. And Rick and I talked. We got along nicely. When I got back home, there was an email message from Rick saying, you might be interested in what I just found in a lot of boxes in the basement. And in those boxes was all kinds of correspondence between Paul and his father, Emil, who was an amazing man. These personal journals that Paul wrote, particularly during the period when he was campaigning to get with Brubeck, a lot of people, you know, say Brubeck was so lucky to have Desmond. If it hadn't been for Desmond, blah, 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 never would have happened, all of that. The fact is, uh, Desmond wanted very much to play with Brubeck because he got the most satisfaction of any of the piano players he worked with in the 40s, early 50s playing with Brubeck because of the way he accompanies and because of the way they thought alike. You know, all of that is in these personal journals that Desmond kept that nobody knew existed. How did Rick come to have them? Well, Rick and, and Paul became close during Paul's final years. Uh, he and his wife, Mary Ellen, that is Rick's wife, Mary Ellen, and Paul uh, became very close, and they spent a lot of time together in New York particularly. So, uh, in his will, Paul left these boxes of stuff to be taken care of by Rick, and Rick put them in the basement. And then, what, 25 years later, because of our conversation, he went down to see what was in them. Also, lots of photographs. Wow. Many of which are in the book. An amazing... Amazing find. That must have been quite an email <laughs> to open up. Now, did you? So, did you fly there and uh, start looking through? I mean, it, no. He he uh, he FedExed me the boxes. And and what was your reaction when you started to to go through them? Relief, delight, because I didn't know how I was going to make a sizable book out of this. As it turns out, the book is three hundred and seventy some pages, and it's a ten by eleven format. It certainly is. <laughs> So it's a big. It's often described as a coffee table book, which, in a, in terms of of dimensions, that's true, but in terms of content, it's not. It's not a National Geographic polar bear book. Did you learn things about Paul Desmond that surprised you in the course of your research? Yeah, his his uh, his analytical approach to becoming the kind of player he wanted to be. I mean, he had it mapped out. It it didn't it wasn't just what Lord Buckley would have called a wig bubble in his case. He he knew what he wanted to be and he mapped out the approach to getting there. Quite amazing. That that surprised me. Uh, the close close relationship between him and his father. His father Emil was a a trained musician, an organist, 
a pianist for silent movies and a uh, a very thoughtful guy and very funny, very uh, humorous, dry wit, sort of like Paul's. And so the uh, the correspondence between them when Paul was on the road or when he was in the army uh, was just extremely illuminating. That was helpful. Do you listen to his music differently now? Well, I listen to a lot more of it because a lot more of it has turned up in the course of the research and since the book was published. No, I'm not sure I listen to it differently, but I think I understand it a little more deeply. I think uh, when I listen to those long lines, if, if I think listening to that long 17-chorus solo on Tangerine, for instance, which is transcribed in the book, Bill Mays transcribed it, and reading along with it, I begin to see not only the lyricism, but the absolute logic of his of his playing, which is is the construction of his solos is almost symphonic sometimes in the way he thinks. So from that standpoint, sure, but just because I've listened to a lot more of it at greater length, I think I understand it better. Let's talk about Riftides, your blog, which, uh, of course, I'll have a link to at thejazzsession.com. And, Thank uh, you. Well, it <laughs> goes without saying. And, and for folks who, uh, it's, a, it's a daily read for me, and for folks who are interested in jazz at all, uh, or really interested in, in music and culture in America, I think it's, it's well worth a read. How did you decide to enter the often crazed territory of blogging? I love this story. One day, I think the Desmond book had just been published. And the publisher and I, Malcolm Harris, and Terry Teachout and Bill Kirchner had lunch. You know Bill Kirchner? Mm -hmm. uh, but tell folks who he is because... Well, Bill I'm Kirchner is a, is a wonderful saxophonist, arranger, leader, uh, the, the major domo of the Bill Kirchner Nanet when it, uh, when it finds work, and uh, a very bright guy. Also the editor of the Oxford... Uh, What's it called? The Oxford Companion, Companion to, to Jazz, jazz right? which is a, a wonderful compendium of uh, articles by some of the best jazz writers about all aspects of jazz. I recommend it highly. Anyway, so Teach Out, should I say who he is? He's the, as well. He's the drama critic for the Wall Street Journal. He's the biographer of H.L. Mencken. He is uh, working on what I suspect will be the definitive biography of Louis Armstrong, I believe the term is polymath. Teachout is a formidable writer. Anyway, so the four of us are having lunch at a little place up on the west side in New York, not far from where Teachout lives, and it has a glass atrium over the part of the restaurant where we were, where we were eating. And I had said a few minutes earlier that I was getting frustrated about the lack of outlets for serious jazz writing. So we went on with our lunch. In a minute, Teachout looks up, I think, through this glass atrium and says, Oh, my God! And I thought, Jesus, the B-52 is about to fall on us. <laughs> and I said, I looked up, there was no B-52, so I said, What was that about? He said, A blog. You should be doing the first jazz blog. Well, there may have been others, but anyway, he said the first one. And he said, not only that, I know where you ought to be doing it, the same place I'm doing mine. There's an outfit called artsjournal.com run by Doug McClellan. So I ended up, thanks to Teach Out, your friends are very helpful in this life. You ever notice that? I have. Uh, thanks to Teach Out. And uh, 
I came under the umbrella of ArtsJournal.com, and I've been doing it now for almost exactly two years. And boy, am I tired. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to go back to that point about the, the kind of immediate feedback. And the I've often heard the, the blogosphere, just like a radio audience, referred to as a giant brain, where the, a radio host can ask a question on the air and in five minutes have someone call in with the answer. And the blog seems to be a similar thing, where you, you'll put out a, a proposition or you'll write a, a, a piece uh, remembering some jazz great, and you know, within what seemed like moments, uh, you've got responses from folks who can add even more detail. Yeah. It's a pretty exciting thing. It is. It really is. It, the excitement is in lieu of money, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but There's, I may make that the new tagline of what, this what show. Are the, what are the guys from the from uh, from the Scripps Institute in? Uh, in La Jolla, who spoke for us sometimes at, at fax conferences when we're educating journalists, would start his talks about uh, the economy of the Internet by saying, there are millions to be lost on the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> and I've helped prove that. But anyway, it's fun. Because I hear from people all over the world, and often they have a great deal to add. People in Sweden. The other day, uh, I got a message from a man in Argentina who had a couple of years earlier visited Ireland and he said in case you think there's no jab in jazz in Dublin I know better and he included a, a video of some wonderful jazz that he recorded in Dublin I thought that was neat have there been uh, I always come back to these surprise questions but have there been uh, some surprising moments at the blog have you heard from people that you never would have expected to hear from or uh, learned things you didn't that you were surprised to learn well I'm sure I have because my ignorance is bottomless, and I'm always learning things I'm surprised to know. Well, you know, one of the satisfying, after uh, Michael Brecker died, Randy Sankey, the trumpet player, wrote and, uh, wrote and mentioned a couple of things about how close he was to Brecker at a certain point in both of their careers. Uh, I had no idea that they even knew each other. So I asked uh, Randy Sankey if he would write something for the blog about Brecker. And he did at great length, and it was wonderful. And that, in turn, brought, I suppose, a couple of dozen responses from some people who knew and worked with Brecker, some who merely admired him. But there's, if you go to the archive uh, of Riftide, you'll find this long string of correspondence from people who were touched by Michael Brecker. I never would have imagined that that many people were, were so close to him, either personally or emotionally. I did an interview uh, with John Abercrombie just after Michael Brecker died, and and uh, he at the end of it he talked a lot about Michael Brecker and uh, a website that focuses on bringing together live recordings of Michael Brecker uh, posted a link to the show, and uh, within a few days, almost a thousand people had downloaded it just to hear John Abercrombie talk about Michael Brecker. I mean, really, oh, a, an amazing musician who apparently impacted uh, a pretty vast array of folks. That's wonderful. I want to close by uh, saying we are in Rochester, New York, and you're here for a, a particular reason. Can you mention why you came to town this weekend? Well, I came last year to uh, cover the swing and jazz event of the Commission Project run by Ned Corman. I ended up doing a lot on the blog about it and about Rochester, sort of a travelogue in a way. And then I did a piece for the Jazz Times special education issue about the Commission Project. So apparently I passed the test and they asked me to come back again and I'm delighted to be here. 
Well, Doug Ramsey, it's been a, a real pleasure to talk to you. Such a such a fascinating life, and uh, I feel like we could we could spend days just talking about the experiences you've had. But I thank okay. you for taking this time. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Part two through seventeen of this podcast will follow. That's yes, right. But thank you so much for taking the time. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. My guest on this TJS Extra edition of the Jazz Session has been writer Doug Ramsey. Check out his excellent blog, Rift Tides. You'll find a link at thejazzsession.com. Until next time, you've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. Please visit the show's website at thejazzsession.com. You'll find interviews, live jazz news, and links to other jazz sites. You'll also find a handy link to subscribe to the show. You can do it via iTunes with one click of the mouse, and that guarantees that you'll always have the latest edition of the show whenever you want to hear it. At thejazzsession.com, you'll also find the Jazz Session store, where you can buy albums by the artists who appear on the show. It's a great way to support jazz music and jazz artists and jazz podcasting all at the same time. Thanks in advance for buying your records that way. I write interviews and reviews for allaboutjazz.com, the world's largest jazz website. You can head to allaboutjazz.com to read those. If you'd like to contact the Jazz Session, couldn't be simpler. Just visit thejazzsession.com and click on the contact link. You'll find a handy form for email submissions. You'll also find the phone number, the snail mail address, the AOL Instant Messenger screen name, and the coordinates in case you'd like to send a pigeon, for example. The theme music for this show is by The Respect Sextet, online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. Thank you very much for listening. Remember to support live jazz whenever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.